those people who bang on about all the things that they can't do because of their mental health. It's true that anxiety stops me doing big things, but it also interferes in a lot of small things as well. There's a long list of things which other people would find easy, wouldn't even really think of things that could be difficult. They're just everyday things that people do that actually I find really, really hard. There's quite a few of them. It's every day there's something that I can't do or I wish I could do or a situation I find myself in that's a bit weird. I don't talk about it very often because I don't want to be that person. A few years ago, I was at home in London and I went to put the recycling out. I didn't bother putting any shoes on. I just threw on a pair of old battered old slipper things that I have. And I went down into the car park and went and put recycling in the bin. And then the door clicked shut behind me and I realised that I hadn't got my keys. Now, in our building in London, it's quite secure. So in order to get from the car park back into the part of the building where the front doors are, you need to have a, at the time, it was a, a pass card. These days we have key fobs. But mine was back upstairs in the flat. And so I was stuck. It's got a grill gate shutter thing. And beyond that, I could see people in the street. And I could see them walking past. And I even saw a few neighbours going past. But I couldn't shout for them. There was just something in me that stopped me raising my voice. I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And the irony is the only way I was going to get out of the bloody car park was to draw some attention to myself because I was stuck in there without any shoes on, sitting on a bin. It was quite a long time I was in there, actually. I saw people going past and I... I couldn't raise my voice. I don't know why, it's... It's, it's, it's odd, but it's true. I, I can't raise my voice. I can't do it. I can't shout. I can't shout somebody's name down the street to get their attention. I never do it. If somebody was 10 yards away and I wanted to get their attention, I'd phone them. There'd be something in me that wouldn't let me raise my voice to shout. I could try to look at why. I mean, I certainly used to shout, but I don't anymore. I certainly still get angry, but I, I don't shout. What's taken that out of me? What's, what's taken that ability away? I don't know. I don't know what I think the consequences would be, but it's something that's been taken away from me. But it's not something that comes up particularly often. There aren't that many occasions in your life were you're asked to shout. Maybe if you go to a pantomime and you're, you're asked to shout something out at one of the cast. But, you know, you can always move your lips in time and pretend that you're shouting. Nobody's going to notice in a crowd that big. It's the little things that anxiety strips you of that you don't really notice. You know, I talk about how hard it is to go to social occasions or how I can't go to the pub with friends. And in future, we'll talk about other things that have fallen by the wayside because mental health gets in the way.
but little things. A few weeks ago, I bought myself a, a mug for the office. I saw it in a card shop on the way to work and it just says, it is what it is. It's a phrase I use quite a lot and I've since discovered it's a phrase that's used quite a lot on Love Island and I can absolutely assure you that is not where I got it from. It's a, it's a philosophy I take with me into work and into most other places that I don't allow myself to become wound up by the things I can't change or the things that have happened. And recently in work, it's been quite a turbulent time for one reason and another. And there's a lot happened that I can't control. I can't do anything about it. So I found myself saying it is what it is quite a lot. And when I, I saw this mug in the window of a card shop on my walk into work, I just had to have it. So I bought it and I took it into work and I drank coffee from it. Decaf, of course. Now, we are in a shared office space, and at the end of the day, I, I wash the mug up and I put it on my desk with a little note attached, a post-it note, to saying, please don't wash up this mug. But I came in the following day to find it had gone. Now, the cleaners go round the office, and with all the mugs, they gather them up and put them back in the kitchens. My mug wasn't in any of the kitchens I could find. I went through the dishwashers. Still nothing. I pretty much resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to see this mug again. You know, people were suggesting to me, oh, you could send an email around everybody in the building or you could go and ask where your mug was. No chance. There is no way I could draw that much attention to myself and have people thinking I was that bothered about a mug. I would much rather have bought a new mug than simply go and ask a few people, have you seen my mug? It's happened to me before that I've lost something or misplaced something and I find a solution that doesn't involve talking to people. The solution in this case was to drop it into conversation with the receptionist who I know quite well and she went round and asked for me. I didn't ask her to, she just did. She found the mug, it was actually up on the top floor. The people on the top floor are in much smaller companies and tend to be a bit trendier than the rest of us. So whenever the cleaners find a mug which isn't a corporate branded mug, they tend to put it up on the top floor because that's where they presume it must have come from. Even though they must have found it on my desk, which wasn't on the top floor. Cleaners in offices do weird things. I remember I used to work with a company that was based in Seattle and one of my friends in the office over there used to drink loose leaf tea and used to keep it in a big plastic bag on his desk. Now it was around about this time that marijuana was legalised in the state of Washington and the cleaners would go round and they obviously saw this big bag of tea on his desk. And so one morning he came in and it was gone. And there was an email in his inbox to say, We've confiscated something from your desk. Can you please come and talk to building security? So he went down to building security and got his tea back and explained to them that, you know, had he actually wanted to keep a nigh on a kilo of marijuana in the office, he probably wouldn't have done it in a plastic bag on his desk. But, you know, it does make me think that if you ever did want to keep a large quantity of marijuana in the office to help you get through the day, then obviously the way to do it without the cleaners taking it is to stick it in a tea caddy. 
But talking to other people is a tough thing. I think one of the things that seems to be impacted the most by my inability to talk to people, talk to people and ask them things, is the ability to go to the toilet. People never really talk about going to the toilet. And don't worry, I'm not actually going to talk about going to the toilet. But you sometimes have to ask people for permission to go to the toilet. I remember once being on a coach trip in Australia and we were heading out towards the Blue Mountains and we were on a little coach taking us from central Sydney that was going to meet in a car park with another coach and then we'd all jump on the bigger coach and head out to the Blue Mountains and the one toilet stop was the the, the car park. There was a little toilet there and we got off and I became so anxious that I would miss the big coach that I didn't go to the toilet even though I'd been absolutely bursting to go to the toilet for a good half hour and so I spent the rest of the journey out to the Blue Mountains even more bursting to go to the toilet all because I'd been so worried that if I went to the toilet in the car park not in the car park in the toilet in the car park then I would have missed the coach it's the same on planes you know you're sitting there and, and you have to ask the person next to you, would you mind moving? Or you do that thing of shuffling with your seatbelt in the hope that they notice and they probably got headphones in watching a film or whatever and they'll notice and they'll sigh and take the headphones out and stand up and then you go past and you, you wander off to the loo or whatever. Well, that's also difficult. I quite often sit there wanting to go to the loo and don't really want to ask the person next to me to move. Although, sometimes they ask you before you ask them. I was once on a flight to Canada. And I was sitting by the window and on the aisle there was a lady who... Well, I noticed later in the flight she was drinking a lot of Baileys. I counted 17 miniatures that she got through. And back in those days, when you flew on Air Canada, they'd come round with ice cream in the middle of the night. And I remember she even got a miniature of Baileys and poured it into the tub of ice cream and mixed it up with the vanilla ice cream. But anyway, it's not the Baileys drinking that there was the problem. I'd been sitting there reading and watching a bit of stuff on the entertainment system and staring out the window at the ocean and then... A few hours into the flight, she leaned across to me and she said, Excuse me, do you need to go to the toilet? And I thought, No, not really. And she leaned in again and said, Well, I notice you haven't been yet and I will move if you want to go. I mean, it just made the whole thing worse because I didn't feel at that point I could say, oh, actually, yes, I do need to go to the toilet, because then it would make it seem like I'd been wanting to go and not wanting to ask her. But equally, I felt like I kind of had to at that point. I felt like she was counting the minutes between me going to the toilet, and was she accusing me of having a problem that I hadn't been in the toilet for that long? So I got up and went to the toilet, even though I didn't really need to go. You know, the, the other anxiety that can happen when you're using the toilet is if you're too far away from the door to make sure that it doesn't open. Now there's there's a bar in Seattle, there's quite a few bars in Seattle, but there's one in particular where a few years ago we were with some friends and I went to use the toilet and somebody would warned me that the toilets in this place were a bit weird. What I wasn't expecting was a room that was probably 20 foot by 20 foot. The door was in the middle of one side and 
at the edge of the wall facing the door, a good 20 feet away from the door, was a toilet. Right next to the door, there was a washing machine and a basin. There was nothing else at all in the room. The toilet wasn't in a cubicle. It was just a huge room with a toilet in the corner. And you go and sit on the toilet or stand at the toilet, whatever you're doing, and you're a long way away from the door. It's quite nerve-wracking being that far away from the door when you're using the toilet. And also, I wondered why there's a washing machine in there. But it turns out that's not as odd as you might think. It's only in recent years that I've discovered that the British were quite unusual in having our washing machine in the kitchen. I think it's quite normal. Our washing machine is in the kitchen both here in Essex and in London it's in a utility room. But that's an extension off the kitchen. Turns out it's really quite common in other parts of the world that the washing machine's in the bathroom. Now, it makes more sense if you think about it, because, you know, that might be where you get undressed and have the laundry basket and whatever. And if you think about it logically, it doesn't actually make that much sense to have the washing machine in the kitchen. But it's what we've grown up with. And so I just accept it as normal. I don't think there's anything particularly odd about having a basket of washing sitting on the side while I'm chopping up vegetables. That's normal, isn't it? The other thing about toilets is, in an attempt to make them eco-friendly, a lot of them now have sensors. So they have no lights on, and you walk in and the lights go on. It's great for the environment because you don't have to light the toilets all day and night in an office building. But what people quite often forget is that the sensors are by the door and that's great for when you walk in. But if you are spending some time in a cubicle, the lights can go off. And there's no way to get the lights to go back on from within the cubicle. Now, one of the cubicles at a place where I used to work didn't have any windows. It was away from the window in the toilets. And so when the lights went off, it was dark. Suddenly you'd be plunged into pitch black and the only way to get the lights to come back on was to make yourself decent enough to fumble for the door of the cubicle and throw yourself out into the toilets and wave your hands around in the hope that you'd set the sensor off and get the lights back on. I mean, I guess you knew there was nobody else in there because had there been, they would have set the sensor off and put the lights back on. So you knew you were quite safe, but you know, you still need to make yourself decent before you launch yourself out of the cubicle, don't you? There was another toilet in that office that seemed also to be designed purely to provoke toilet anxiety. So you went in through the door and then you went round a corner, round an artificial wall. And behind that artificial brick wall was the toilet. So you couldn't see the toilet from the door and you couldn't see the door from the toilet. That's all fine. But I like to be able to see the toilet door. I like to be able to reassure myself that it's locked. You know, I think I've talked too much about toilets. Although, a toilet at work, where I work now, has a disturbing number of loo rolls. I remember it must have been nearly three years ago now that I went there for a job interview. And I remember when I went for the interview, I took a picture of the, to of the toilet rolls. It's a holder that goes on the wall and it actually has four toilet rolls on the holder all ready for use 
it isn't that one of them is usable and the others are stacked out of the way as spurs. It's that there are four toilet rolls hanging there. What's that all about? I still don't know. One of the cubicles has got four and one of them's got two. What's wrong with just having a loo roll and some spurs? I mean, the toilet at work also once had a goose in it. That happened before my time and I'm not entirely sure what happened. There was something to do with a goose getting lost in the building or getting trapped in the building and the facilities manager wasn't quite sure what to do with the goose so he chased it into the disabled loo and shut the door. No idea how he eventually got the goose out but I've still seen pictures that people have of the sign on the door telling people not to use the disabled loo because there's currently a goose in there. You don't tend to talk to people in toilets. I, I find it weird when people do. It never happened to me, but it seems in ladies' loos, people do strike up conversations. Men never do this. You know, in the gym episode, I was talking about the, the barrier that you put round yourself. You don't talk to people in the gym when you're in that state. And certainly, when you're using the loo, you don't make conversation with people. But it seems that a place I used to work, a female member of staff used to do it quite often. She'd go into the loo, sit down in a cubicle and ask who was in the cubicle next door and strike up conversation with them. Nobody needs that. The other thing is that our general manager over there had a rearrangement of his office. He'd read some management book where it said that the most conducive way to arrange chairs around the table in order to get natural conversation was to have two armchairs at just over 45 degrees to each other in front of a coffee table. And so he got a couple of chairs and he'd done this in an effort to get people to talk more openly with him. One of my colleagues walked in and she said, oh, that's just like the chair we have in the ladies' loo. And I thought to myself, they have chairs in the ladies' loo? We don't have chairs in the gents'. Ladies have chairs. And I had this idea that suddenly the ladies' loo was like some palatial, velvet-draped room that was all luxurious and full of easy chairs. I mean, somebody pointed out to me that I was missing the, the obvious answer, that it was probably somewhere private for women to go breastfeed if they wanted somewhere private to breastfeed a baby that they had in the office. That makes a lot more sense than having a palatial loo for the ladies. But, you know, we didn't have easy chairs in the blokes' loo. Also hear stories of in the London office of the same place, long before I worked there, but when it was a much smaller company, there were literally no ladies in the company. Now, sadly, that's not particularly unusual for a tech company in London and certainly wasn't particularly unusual that many years ago. But on each floor, there was a ladies' loo and a gents' loo. And when a lady finally did start, she went into the ladies' loo to discover... had magazines. No, before you think about it, not those kind of magazines. Just nice-to-read magazines. And air fresheners. And toiletries. Turns out, one of the guys in the office had turned the ladies' loo into his personal loo and he decorated it with nice things. So maybe the ladies' loos are all like that. I don't think I've ever been in a ladies' loo. Women tend to use gents' loos because when the ladies' loos get busy, as they always do, because nowhere seems to plan for the fact that ladies' loos are logistically different to men's loos and therefore there tend to be queues at the ladies' when there are not queues at the men's. And you get women who start going and using the cubicles in the men's. 
And it's quite disturbing when a woman, you know, taps you on the shoulder when you're standing at the urinal to say hello. But, you know, you get on with it, don't you? But gents never go into the ladies' loo. I don't think I've ever seen the inside of a ladies' loo. So maybe they are all palatial and I just don't know it. Hmm. Anyway, it's not just toilets that are a problem. It's anything. It's anything where talking to somebody where there isn't a script is necessary. You know, going into a shop to ask where something is, or if you can't find the cash desk, asking where the cash desk is, or do they sell a particular thing, or they can they help you with a particular product? I find that really difficult. I have to rehearse exactly what I'm going to say, what they might say, what I might say in response, how to phrase it so that I, I get what I want and don't appear stupid. Nothing simple when you have anxiety like mine. Nothing is a straightforward improvisation. You have to plan things. You have to prepare yourself for every eventuality. You have to think in advance what you're going to say, rehearse it, make sure you're not going to sound stupid. I did, however, once get into a battle of wits with somebody in a shop. It wasn't a battle that involved fighting, it was just a bit of a silly game I used to play. I worked at a place over by Paddington Station. And in Paddington Station there was a little stall selling coffee and croissant and little swirly cinnamon things. And every morning I'd buy a coffee and every morning the woman behind the, um, the counter of the stall would say, do you want anything else with your coffee? I'd always say no, but I made it my personal mission to ask for my coffee in such a way that there is no way she could ask me afterwards if I wanted anything else. I tried, I would just like a coffee. Just a coffee, please. Only a coffee this morning. Actually, I'll just have a cup of coffee, please. It seemed nothing was going to put her off trying to upsell me to a croissant. Nine months I tried that for. Nine months and I never managed to ask for a cup of coffee in such a way that she couldn't then ask me if I wanted a pastry. I consider that a personal failure. I mean, on the other side, I worked at a place in Chiswick for, oh, it was nearly five years I worked there and... Down on the ground floor of the building, we had one floor in the building, but down on the ground floor there was um, a little coffee shop. And I used to go in there every morning and there was a lady called Belinda who was lovely and she used to run the coffee shop of a morning and I'd go in and i ask for cappuccino. I'd always have a cappuccino and I'd get a cheese and tomato croissant and take the tomatoes out. That's what i do every morning. It was a ritual, it was a habit. I'd go in and do it every morning. And every morning I'd walk in and she'd say, do you want the usual? And she said, oh, do you want the usual? A cappuccino and a pan of raisin. And I'm like, I've never ordered a pan of raisin. I didn't even know they sell them. But this became the thing that every day she'd say, oh, do you want your usual? And if I got in first and said, I'll have a cappuccino and a cheese and tomato croissant, she said, oh, you're not having the usual today. I mean, one day, before even asking me what I wanted, she'd given me a cappuccino and two panoraisin in a bag. And of course, there's no way I'm going to say to her, you've got it wrong, that's not what I want. So I just paid for them and smiled and left. 
that didn't help. Because from then on, I'd actually bought two panorays, and so actually, she thought that's what I wanted. I started having a cappuccino and a panorays of a morning, even though I didn't really like the panorays. I wanted a cheese croissant, but I felt like I couldn't ask for one because I'd be disappointing her. I left that job anyway, not because of the panoraison, probably. The other thing that bugs me is that Starbucks have started asking for your name. Now, I get it. It's big. It's a big shop and there's lots of people, especially in the city of London. It's busy of a morning. There's a queue of people and coffees are getting made and stacked up and they need to identify whose coffee's which and what order they're coming in. And I get that. But they started doing this thing of asking for your name so they could write it on the cup of coffee. Okay. But then they'd start drawing smileys. Or they'd start circling the name or underlining it or drawing a heart above the eye if you had an eye. You know, they start embellishing the name. And then they start using the name. Now, I, I'm used to the fact that Starbucks are going to try and upsell me of a morning. I don't tend to buy anything other than coffee, but I know that when I do just buy the cup of coffee, they're going to say, would you like anything else this morning? And have a glance over at the muffins in the hope I can be tempted by one of those raspberry cheesecake muffins, which are actually amazing. But no, I just want a decaf venti caramel macchiato. That's what I want of a morning. But I give them my name and sometimes they get it right. You'd think that Dan, D-A-N, would be a nice phonetic name. You wouldn't think it was going to come out as Gam, which I've had quite a few times. I've had Dean a few times. Um, I've had Dave a few times. I mean, Gam was certainly the most interesting, but I know it's mine anyway, because nobody else gets a decaf caramel macchiato in that size. But what I don't like is when they do get the name right and you go, oh yeah, they say, what's your name? And I go, it's Dan. And they write it on the cup and they put the little smiley face and they go, so Dan, would you like anything else this morning? And I think to myself, I didn't give you permission to use my name. I gave you my name so that you could write it on the coffee cup, not so that you could use it to try and pretend that you're my friend and sell me a muffin. It bugs me. It bugs me so much that I've actually now started using the Starbucks app so I don't have to talk to a person in a shop. I mean... It's quite nice not having to talk to a person in a shop, but there's always the fear that the order's going to go wrong. Do you know, the very first time I used the Starbucks app, the order went wrong and I had to explain to somebody that the order was wrong. And that was worse than just talking to them in the first place to order the coffee. But, you know, it is nice being able to walk in, grab the coffee and walk out without talking to anyone. But does anyone actually check? I mean, couldn't I just walk into Starbucks, glance down at my phone to look convincing and grab a cup of coffee and walk off with it? Nobody's going to chase after me. I'm not doing it, by the way. I haven't done that. I always order my caramel macchiato from the Starbucks on Gracechurch Street and then I walk in and I pick it up and I walk out. I always walk out with my own coffee, never with anyone else's. But the good thing about the app is you can also customise the coffee a bit more. You can do much more complicated things to the coffee than you could if it was just talking to a person. Hmm. You know, I really want a cup of coffee now. I'm going to wrap up there. I'm going to go and make myself a cup of coffee. Goodbye.